you have your Bible, I'd invite you to open it to Psalm 37 this morning with me. We're going to start a new series this morning. We're going to be in this series today through Psalm Sunday. Nobody picked up on that pun. Nobody picked up on that pun. We'll be there through Psalm Sunday, yes, uh, we're starting, we're actually continuing a series in the Psalms. If you were here a few years ago, 2013, we did a series on the Psalms in February, same title, Real People Following the Real God in a Real World. Um, and rather than do one series where we go through all 150 Psalms, we're going we're gonna to do a few every few years. Uh, and so I think we did eight or nine uh, back then in 2013, and we're going to do uh, about eight this year, starting this Sunday and going through uh, Palm Sunday, which is March, uh, third Sunday of March. I'm not sure what the date is there. Third Sunday of March is Palm Sunday this year. So Psalms, um, beginning the book of Psalms uh, this morning, if you haven't read the Psalms, let me just give you a little bit, very brief background, ancient so song book. When you open your Bible, a lot of times if you just open your Bible, you're going to open it to the book of Psalms. It's uh, by page-wise going to be your longest book of the Bible, not by words-wise, uh, but by page-wise going to be uh, one of your longest books that are in the Bible. And it's a little different than a lot of the other literature that we find in Scripture, in fact, if you've never read the Psalms, you might be surprised to find out what they are. Many times when we come to the Bible, what we expect to find are words from God to people. And for the most part, that's what we find. I mean, in various genres, and, and they're written, but they're from God to people. But when we come to the Psalms, we find something a little bit different. We come to the Psalms and we find we're, I'm getting a little ringing here, guys. I don't know if you can, I don't know if anyone else is hearing that or just me. Um, but when we come to the Psalms, we're getting words from people. They were inspired by God, but from people to God. Their prayers, their songs. Uh, in fact, the Psalms was really the songbook of the church for many, many years. From the early church on, the Psalms were really the songbook that they would use. And you come to the Psalms and you find words from people to God. And sometimes, in fact, very often in the Psalms, very honest words from people to God. I was reminded of this this uh, week when I was um, putting Isaac to bed. And a lot of times, uh, when I, before I put him to bed, I'll read one of the Psalms to him. Now, there are some Psalms that are great to read right before going to bed in the evening. There are other Psalms that just cause more questions than answers and, and, and sometimes are a little more difficult. They're not exactly bedtime reading material. And so I was reading one of these psalms to him this, this week and it started about punishing the ungodly and the bloodthirsty and all of this stuff. And, uh, and I was like, I was like, I wasn't really, I didn't really read it beforehand before I read it to him. And I wasn't really ready and allowed time for a lengthy conversation on it. So I was just like, wrapped it up, and I'm like, good night, bud, you know, and tried to kind of walk backwards out of the room, and he's like, dad, wait, 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 wait. He said, that's really mean. And I'm like, well, what are you talking about? And it was one of the, and he's like, that's really mean, you know, what that, what that said in there. And so then I had a conversation with him, much like I'm having with you right now, 
that the Psalms are words from people to God that God inspired that are very honest words that people often feel given under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, right in theology, right through the filter of God, but very honest words. And so you ever, you look at the Psalms and it connects with the world around us. If you've ever looked around and wondered why bad people sometimes seem to prosper and good people sometimes seem to suffer, the Psalms is often the place to go to look for more about that. Does it ever seem like in this world it's the greedy, the arrogant, the godless people who get all the breaks? And the nice, caring, God-fearing people are the ones who get walked all over. Psalmists experienced this and understood this. We don't like it when the bad guys win. There's something that bothers us when the guilty get off or the sleazy business person weasels money away from people. We want things to wrap up nicely. We prefer to live in a world where good people always win and bad people always lose. We want life to work out like every Hallmark Channel movie. Wraps up in the end where everything turns out great for the people who deserve it. But you don't have to look very far to realize life doesn't always work that way. And what do you do when you look around and life isn't working that way? There's, you ever seen these motivation posters out there? Uh, I don't know if they're as popular as they used to be. But, you know, I, I, sometimes you hang them in boardrooms or in offices where they have these beautiful pictures and then they have these motivational sayings under them. You might have a picture of uh, a, a boat rowing and a bunch of people rowing in, in sync with each other. And then below it, it says teamwork. Working together can accomplish anything. And that inspires you just to do your work harder and to work all the harder. Well, there's another company out there that I've talked about, uh, I think, in the past a little bit called Demotivators. And they kind of do the opposite. They have the same beautiful pictures that you might hang up, but if you look closely, you realize the sayings aren't quite as inspiring as the others. So there's one that they have, and there's this picture of a beautiful river And there's a salmon, a fish, swimming upstream. And he jumps right out of the water. And there's a grizzly bear right above the salmon, ready with his mouth open, ready to chomp his mouth down on this salmon. And the saying below it says, Ambition, the journey of a thousand miles, sometimes ends very, very badly. We see situations in life where we know people who are like the salmon, don't we? There are people who work and struggle to get somewhere in life. They're good, honest, hardworking people, but it seems like whenever they're just about to get ahead in life, there's a giant bear ready to chomp down on them. Or maybe sometimes you feel like that. Maybe sometimes you feel like you're the salmon. You're the good person who can't catch a break. Meanwhile, you know a lot of bad people, or at least people who are doing immoral things, and things seem to go great for them. Maybe you go back to a high school reunion, or you see people on Facebook that you used to know that you really didn't like. They bullied you. They always acted like they were better than you. They didn't take school seriously. And now you look at them and you see beautiful pictures of their house and family and their amazing vacations. And you look at your own situation and you start feeling something within you. You start feeling upset or angry or maybe jealous. 
And you wonder, why should they get a better life than I have? The psalmist understood this. It bothers us when we see people who are good suffering, while in the world there are others who make bad decisions and they seem to succeed. We think it stinks when a ruthless cutthroat business person cuts thousands of jobs that people rely on, puts families in difficult situations just so the company's stock can tick up a few cents. We struggle with these things. We think it's not right when we see people who are longing to be parents and have children and it doesn't seem to be happening, while there are other people who are making poor life choices who seem to have no problem getting pregnant with children they don't even want. Stuff like that makes us uncomfortable. There is that person that you know is a great person, but maybe they're always sick. And not just like with the sniffles, but chronically ill. And you look and you wonder, why? Why can that person be living in the way they do, loving God, loving people? and still suffering the way that they are. Perhaps you look at pictures coming out of the Middle East or Paris or San Bernardino and it makes you upset. Innocent people suffer and it seems like some evil people don't. Psalm 37. Psalm 37 we come to this morning and David, as he writes this psalm, is wrestling with some similar feelings is wrestling with some, some similar things going on when he looks at the world around him and then he looks at his world and some of the same questions and some of the same feelings that maybe just arose in your heart and in your spirit arose in David as well. I want to look at verses 1 through 11 today, Psalm 37, 1 through 11. And we're going to uh, look at this message in three parts. If you're taking notes, if you're a note taker, uh, I'm going to give you three words that you can build this message around if you're taking notes. At the top of your paper, or at the top of your note sheet, write the word don't. Write the word don't. Somewhere around the middle of the page, write the word instead. Instead. And then somewhere near the bottom of the page, not right at the bottom, but near the bottom, leave yourself some room, write the word because. So don't. Instead, because. And I'm going to get at those three words in just a moment in this message this morning. And here's what David writes, Psalm 37, 1 through 11. Do not fret because of evil men or be envious of those who do wrong. For like the grass, they will soon wither. Like green plants, they will soon die away. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and enjoy safe pasture. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your ways to the Lord. Trust in him, and he will do this. He will make your righteousness shine like the dawn, the justice of your cause like the noonday sun. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Do not fret when men succeed in their ways, when they carry out their wicked schemes. Refrain from anger and turn from wrath. Do not fret. It leads only to evil. For evil men will be cut off, but those who hope in the Lord will inherit the land. A little while, and the wicked will be no more. Though you look for them, they will not be found. 
but the meek will inherit the land and enjoy great peace. That first part of your, the, the notes on the do not, after don't or do not, write the word fret. Fret. Starts out, David starts out this passage with this very simple command. Do not fret. Don't fret. How many did some fretting this week? Anybody fret this week? We have, a, we have two hands up by some people. We live in a world in many ways that's very accustomed and very open and promotes us fretting with everything we see. I mean, David only saw the things around him and maybe heard some news through some people or through some written communications, but we have 24-7 news coverage, and not just on the TV anymore. It comes through your phone, and it comes through your car radio, and it comes through every place you are, and news is coming in from all over, giving you all kinds of reason to fret. And David says, don't fret. And you hear that and you say, okay, no problem. We'll go home. We're done. But it's not that easy, is it? Don't fret is the first thing he says. The word fret comes from the Hebrew word hurrah. And it's really interesting because it's, it's almost a, it, it, it does what it sounds, hurrah. What it is, is it's, it's this feeling that comes like a burning sensation in the back of your throat that is irritating and frustrating and a little painful. And some of you had those winter colds, and you know what I'm talking about. You just got that irritating feeling in the back of your throat that burns. And that's what this Hebrew word comes out of. Don't fret. Don't get irritated and frustrated, which results often in worry. He says, don't fret because of evil men. Don't Get angry because of the evil men you see around you. And don't get envious of them either, it says. When we see evil around us, you could say, well, shouldn't we have a righteous anger about things? Certainly. There are plenty of scriptures and even plenty of psalms that talk about righteous anger at injustice, at abuse, at exploitation, all these things. There's plenty of scriptures that talk about that. And there are psalms that talk about getting this righteous anger at injustice. We even see Jesus at times have a righteous anger. But that's not what David's talking about here. David is talking about the feeling that comes in your life that you just get ticked off because of wicked people succeeding, or it seems, like the, it seems like the unjust are getting rewarded. And you're not, it's not a righteous anger. It's just an emotion in you that just comes and sits and promotes envy and just burns and irritates you. And David's telling you, what are you supposed to do with that feeling? Anybody know what that feeling feels like? You just get that feeling, and, and it's not like, oh, I'm righteous anger over this. It's just like, oh, I'm ticked off, and I just doesn't feel good seeing some of the things that I'm seeing around me. And that's what this psalm, that's what this word fret is getting at. I, I had to, I went, I did a lot of research this week on that word because I thought, why is it translated fret? Because the Hebrew clearly means anger. Every place you look, it's anger, anger, anger. But, but it's, it has this nuance to it that it's not this strong, righteous anger. It's just this irritation that comes up within us, that we just get irritated by it. And every translation you'll read translates it, don't fret, 
because it's don't get irritated. Don't get worried. Don't let these things bother you. But they do. But they do. They do at times. In fact, one of the things we do is we sometimes envy people. We, David's saying in this passage, in this scripture, he says, don't envy those who do evil. But we sometimes do. Happens in our world even easier than it happens in David's. Happens on things like social media, Facebook. There was a study done about Facebook and people's reaction to it. And these researchers came up with a a, a title for what happens on Facebook. And they called it the self-promotion envy spiral. You might be able to figure out what it is just by the words. Self-promotion envy spiral. What happens is you go on Facebook and you see someone that's doing better than you. And you start getting envious of them. And so what do you do? Well, the the people in the study say the most healthy thing to do would be to unfriend them. Don't look at the post. Just pull away. But that's not what people do. Here's how people subconsciously often respond. I'm going to put a post on about me. Look how great my kids are doing. Look at this this beautiful craft I made. And, and, And even embellish a bit. And with the idea of I'm, you know, you're not thinking this, but, but what's happening subconsciously is I'm going to make them envious. I'm going to show how good I'm doing. And then they read your post and they go, well, look at my craft. Well, look at how great my, and this spiral that keeps going that promotes envy in our culture and in our world. And some of you have been a part of that. Some of you have seen that when you get on and it's not healthy, it's not helpful. You suddenly get off Facebook and you feel worse than when you got on. And why is that? One reason is because of this self-promotion envy spiral that sometimes happens. So what do we do when we see the wicked thrive and good people struggle? First thing David tells us is don't fret, but that's maybe easier said than done. And uh, if I tell you don't fret... Sometimes the first thing we think about when we leave here is just fretting. So let's get to instead. Instead. Fretting often comes very natural to us. It makes us feel like we're actually doing something when we're not. We're often creating a lot of heat, but no real, not really accomplishing anything. But what do we to do instead of fretting? David gives us four imperative words. Four imperative verbs that tell us what to do instead of fretting. It says, trust in the Lord, delight yourself in the Lord, commit your way to the Lord, and be still before the Lord. Gives us these four imperatives. Trust in the Lord, delight yourself in the Lord, commit your way to the Lord, and be still before the Lord. Now, if I had asked you before even reading this passage, what do you think we should do, a Christian should do instead of fretting? We'd probably come up with a lot of words, and I think in those words, you'd probably come up with three of these four at some point. At some point, someone would say, we're supposed to trust in God. We're supposed to rely on Him and and not fret and not worry because I've heard that that would help us. And someone might say, we're supposed to commit our way to God. We're supposed to trust God with our path, with our journey. We're supposed to commit your path to Him. I hear this, commit your ways, ways, way to God, and I think about, commit your ways to God, and I literally think about that app, Ways. I don't know how many of you use Ways. 
uh, to get where you're going. It's a GPS app. I use it sometimes. And Waze is interesting um, from some other GPS apps because Waze will often take you through some circuitous routes to find the quickest path to where you're going. It's not going to just keep you on the highways. I followed ways through neighborhoods that I did not know existed near my house and near the church. And, and I follow it because I trust ways. I have committed my way to ways. And I've also found that at times I'm like, you don't know anything ways. I know this neighborhood. I know where I'm going. I can't go that road at this time of day. There's traffic. Forget it. And you know what happens? I end up spending more time going my way than if I had followed ways. And I think of that when I think of commit your ways to the Lord. That at times we go our own way instead of following God's direction. It ends up taking more time, ends up taking more energy, more effort to go where we're going, whether if we had just followed what God's direction was in the first place. So commit your ways to the Lord. Maybe that's someone you can remember that. So we'd probably come up with commit your way to the Lord. And I think someone at some point, if I said, what are we supposed to do instead of fretting? Someone in this room would say, we should be still. Whether you got it from this Psalm or from Psalm 46, you would say, we're supposed to be still. Know that God is in control. Know that God is the one who's directing us and leading us. Be motionless. Trust in God. The funny thing is about being still often takes a lot of effort, doesn't it? It's easier sometimes to fret than to be still. Sometimes being still takes an extreme amount of effort. I think of it like, a, when I think of this, be still and know that I am God, and be still and, and trust and have patience, trust in God's patience, I think of it like a tightrope walker. You know, a tightrope walker, I've never done it, but from what I've seen, you have to be pretty still when you're on that wire. And you're holding the bar or whether you're, you know, up over the Twin Towers or the Grand Canyon or Niagara Falls. When I've seen them, the one thing they are not doing is, at least visibly on the outside, fretting. Their body is as still as it can be. But I would imagine it takes an extreme amount of effort and discipline to stay still in that moment. It's probably the same with us, I think, following Christ. That we want to fret and we want to run here and we want to run there. And yet the scripture tells us, be still. It takes a lot of effort. It takes a lot of energy. But be still. I think we'd come up with be still. It's this fourth one that I'm not sure we'd come up with. Psalm chapter 37, verse 4. I'm not sure any of us would say, you know what, instead of fretting, delight yourself in the Lord. Instead of fretting, delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Because this one, I don't think, comes right to our minds because it maybe sounds a little strange to us. Delight yourself in the Lord. You know what the Hebrew word for delight means? It means delight. And that still doesn't help. It, doesn't, it sounds a little strange to us. Delight yourself in the Lord. Find your pleasure in Him. Another way to translate it, to pamper yourself 
in the Lord. Sounds like a spa, but it's another way to translate. Delight, find your pleasure. Delight yourself in God. I think that sounds a little more strange to us, and we're not always sure how to take this. In a sense, David's saying what the old trash bag commercial used to say. Remember the trash bag commercial where the guy's tra- carrying his trash bag out to the curb, and you know, and he's about halfway there, and the bag breaks, and all the garbage falls out. The guy's upset, right? Because when the bag that's supposed to keep the garbage separated from stuff that's not supposed to touch garbage breaks, we get mad. And their solution is get a better trash bag. And the truth is the same thing when the garbage of this world gets in places where we wouldn't want it to get, we get mad. And you remember the saying at the end of the commercial? Don't get mad, get mad. Glad. And uh, it's kind of, I, I see that and I see David kind of saying that. Don't get mad. Don't fret. Get glad. Delight yourself in the Lord. And it's that easy. Don't get mad. Get glad. But it's not that easy, is it? It's not as easy as Bobby McFerrin saying, don't worry, be happy. It's not that easy. And why isn't it that easy? I struggled with this this week. And I I talked to Pastor Brian in this past. I said, I'm really struggling with this delight yourself in the Lord. And I don't know why I'm struggling with it. And I I finally, towards the end of the week, started to understand, I think, why I was struggling with it. And maybe why you might struggle with it too. It's because delight, just like trust, just like commit, and just like be still, is an imperative. And it's hard for me to grasp a command to delight. It's hard for me to understand how someone could tell me, command me to delight. It seems like someone's commanding me to be happy. And and how could you do that? How, How could you do that? And so I'm struggling with this word and I'm trying to figure out why is it so hard for me to grasp? And what I finally came up with is I think the reason is because so often when we think of delight, when we think of joy, what we think of is an involuntary response to an external stimuli. We think the way that I am delighted, the way that I, uh, uh, you know, enjoy, the way that I delight is as an involuntary response to an external stimuli. This uh, week, Wendy and I went out uh, for dinner this week, and we, we, someone had given us a gift card for our anniversary back in July, and we finally this week uh, got around to using it. And so we went out uh, for dinner at one of these uh, high-end steakhouses in Burlington that seem to be on every corner now, and we don't go uh, to those often, but when somebody, when we get a gift card and, and we get a chance, maybe once or twice a year, we'll get a chance to go to one of these restaurants. And so we went to one of these on Wednesday night, and um, I ordered uh, this after having the waiter go through every single steak they have on the menu. I finally picked one, ordered it. They brought it to the table, and this thing, I won't show you a picture of it because you get hungry, but they, they brought this thing to the table, and it was, if you're a steak lover, I mean, it was... It was charbroiled on the outside, and it was cooked right on the inside, and peppercorns and the present and everything. It just looked wonderful. Cut off a little piece. It was cooked just the way I like. Put it in the sauce. Eat it. And then in that moment, I don't know what, but there was a, there was a, mm, 
There was just a, a verbal involuntary response to this external stimuli that I would describe as delight. It was just like, oh, that's good. Like, I am going to enjoy the next 15.8 ounces of this thing. <laughs> and I think so often that's what we think of as delight. Not as something we eat, maybe a hobby, maybe something you're interested in that brings pleasure, that brings joy. It's an external stimuli that brings you joy, and we think, well, that's delight. You can't command that because that just happens. And we think of it that way, that you can't command someone to delight because some people like this, somebody likes steak, somebody likes chicken, somebody doesn't like any meat. You know, you can't command them to delight, and yet... Psalm 37.4 is an imperative. Delight in the Lord. So how do we reconcile these things? How do we reconcile these things? The truth is we do live in a world that seems to think and believe that you cannot control what you delight in. We live in a world that seems to think that everyone experiences their own pleasure in whatever way and they should be able to pursue that in whatever way that they want. The pursuit of happiness. So one thing makes me happy and one thing makes you happy and you can't control it, you just have to pursue it. We live in a world that gives that message to our kids. Whatever makes you happy, just go after it because you can't control what makes you happy and you deserve to be happy, so go after it. But that's not very scriptural. Because in fact, the scriptures teach very clearly that you can direct your delight and your pleasure. And so the imperative in Psalm 37, 4 is not an impossibility. David's saying it's very much within the possibility that you can choose what you delight yourself in. And the truth is you and I do it all the time. Because there are things that you might know might bring you short-term, immediate pleasure that you choose not to engage in. You choose not to delight yourself in. You have consciously made an effort not to delight in something that you know could be harmful, that long-term effects aren't going to be good, that it's not where you want to go in the long term. So you choose, I will not delight myself in that. We do this all the time. And so why can't we go a step further and choose that which we will delight in and bring us pleasure? According to the Bible, God, the way God designed us, we can't. Jesus said it this way in Matthew chapter 6. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. See, what our world often wants us to believe is where your heart is, you can't control, and that's where your treasure goes. The, the heart wants what the heart wants, and you can't control that, and you have to follow that, and it's just an urge, and you have no control over that. But what Jesus is saying is, no, where you put your treasure, your heart's going to follow. That there is control. There is conscious decision over that. You do not have to be led around by your stomach or just your visceral urges. You have a decision that you can make. And when you make a decision to put your treasure, not just money, but certainly money, time, energy, your life, 
your, your, everything that you've been given by God, when you make a conscious decision to put that in a certain place, you know what's going to happen? Your emotions and your heart are going to follow those things. And you can make a decision where that's going to happen. Remember when I was dating Wendy, and there was, you know, obviously when you're, when you're first dating, there's an initial attraction. But the more you get into putting your treasure towards a person, buying airline tickets, writing letters, going out on dates, the more your treasure, then your heart starts to go there even more than it was before. Where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Jesus is saying you can make this decision. Where you choose to put your time and resources. You know, if you put all your time and resources around sports or something like that, you know where your heart's going to be? It's where your heart is. You put all your time and resources into a hobby, you know where your heart's going to be? Hobbies aren't bad. But if your heart dwells there and all your treasure goes there, you may be missing what God has for you. And you may have a hard time delighting in the Lord because you're not making any investment there. And if there's no investment there and there's no treasure there, well, don't be surprised if your heart's not there. Because Jesus says where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. People are looking for a way to satisfy their soul to satisfy a longing in their soul, to find satisfaction, to find happiness. And they look in all kinds of places. David is saying, delight yourself in the Lord because that's where you're going to find it. One of the best illustrations I heard from this, uh, about this, about this idea that we look for satisfaction in places and, and miss it, places in this world, was by Pastor Brian Wilkerson over at Grace Chapel down the street. Uh, Brian said years ago, when our kids were young, we were at a themed restaurant with TVs all over the place, and they were playing cartoons with no sound. And our youngest son, who was about four at the time, had his eyes glued to the TV screen. He was watching a continuous loop of the Roadrunner cartoons, watching as Wiley e. Coyote strapped on a rocket, launched himself out from a giant slingshot in pursuit of the elusive Roadrunner. And after watching intently for a long time, he had an epiphany. Without taking his eyes off the screen, he quietly announced to our family, no matter what he does, he's never going to get that chicken. <laughs> Revelation. And isn't that the storyline, though? No matter what we do, we're never going to beat some of those things that bother us in this world. Some of those things that are always going to be there. Some of those things that people look for, for satisfaction and to fill their life. No matter what we do or try and gain in this world, it's going to fall short of satisfying us. The truth is, you may get the chicken, but then you'll want steak. And we search for things in this world to satisfy us. And David's saying, you know, you're envious of these wicked people. You get mad when they succeed. Delight yourself in the Lord. Delight yourself in the Lord. And he will, lift, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Pastor John Piper has a book um, called Desiring God. It's about 350 pages about this. It's about this thick. And 
Um, Piper's a heady guy. And almost the whole book is written about this concept. This one verse. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. In fact, Piper kind of rephrases it this way. God's greatest glory is where you will find your greatest pleasure, or our greatest pleasure is found in God's greatest glory. That when God is glorified most, you and I experience the most pleasure. And you say, well, how can that be? Well, if you've had a job and you've worked in a company, and you're working hard, and you're trying to do a good job, and one time the the, the, uh, boss comes into the meeting, and he says, hey, you know, this quarter, we had a great quarter. And, and what you did added to this company's success this quarter. And the company is growing and, and things are going great because of what you did. In that moment, you feel delight. You feel something that rises up within you. And, 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 and Piper's saying the same thing. When God is glorified, if that's your highest goal, to see God lifted up and to see God glorified, then you know what? When he is, you feel delight. You feel pleasure. Your desire, your greatest desire is being met. And so when our greatest desire is to see God glorified, then our greatest desires of our heart, then we feel pleasure when that is met. I'll come back to that in just a minute, but let's get back, let's get to the last part of this sermon before, as we conclude. Because, because, don't fret, instead delight yourself in the Lord, because, well, he says a number of things, but one of the things he said is because one day wicked and the wicked will, people will be no more. There's an end to wickedness. He says it like four times in these 11 verses. They'll be cut off. There's an end. There's no future. Wickedness does not go on forever. There's a time where God says, enough. Jesus comes back. Justice rolls like a mighty river. Things are set right. And it's enough. And there is no more wickedness. And so David says, instead, delight yourself in the Lord because wickedness will come to an end one time. It does not last forever. And it's the meek who inherit the earth. It's the meek who inherit the land. It's the meek who inherit the land. The land that David was thinking of was a literal land that he was chased out of, the literal promised land that he was chased out of by Saul, and he was chased out of eventually by his son Absalom, and he was hang on to this promise that the meek inherit the earth. For us, God has promised a better land than Joshua went into and conquered. There's the ultimate land, the ultimate heaven, the ultimate inheritance that we get to be with with God. And he says, it's the meek. Meek, strength under control. It's the meek who inherit it from God. Do not fret. Delight yourself in the Lord because he will give you the desires of your heart. That's the end of verse 4. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Does that mean when I delight myself in God, he gives me everything I want? Yes. Yes. That's what it means. But when you delight yourself in the Lord, everything you want changes. When I delight myself in the Lord, when I am fully engaged, and he is where I find my pleasure, my significance, and my meaning, those things that I want become the things that he wants. Delight yourself in the Lord, 
and he will grant you the desires of your heart. Harry Adams lives in Fayetteville, North Carolina. And he said of this psalm, he said, Recently my wife and daughter and I were reading Psalm 37 when we came to the fourth verse. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. I asked if this was true for me, Harry says. I'm crippled by Lou Gehrig's disease, ALS, which is a progressive and fatal neurological illness. In the eight years I've had ALS, it's taken my voice, robbed me of the use of my limbs. It's also forced us out of our lovely home. Is the promise of fulfilled desires true for me and for the millions of other believers who have had their plans and dreams shattered? That's the question when we come to Psalm 37.4. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Is it true for everyone? Because if it's not true for everyone... If it's not true in Burlington and in Belmont and in Bangkok and in Bangladesh and in Barbados, if it's not true everywhere, then it's not true. Is it true that those in a third world country can delight themselves in the Lord and get the desires of their heart just as much as those in the first world country? Is it true for the one that's cast for the part and the one that's cast out? Is it true for everyone? That's what Harry's asking. Is it true for me with ALS? Losing control of my body. Dreams that I've had. Is it true? And this is how Harry responds to Psalm 37.4. He says, yes, it's true. Exceedingly so. He says, I desire a healthy body. And Jesus promises me a body that is powerful, incorruptible, glorious, and spiritual. I desire a home that is beautiful and spacious, and he is preparing such a home for me in a city whose builder is God. I desire a world without crime, lies, or violence, and he promises me a world where righteousness dwells. I desire to be with those I love, and he promises that I will be caught up together with them forever. I desire an end to my sorrow, and he promises me fullness of joy in his presence. I desire a heart so filled with love that there is no room for sin, and he promises to make me like Jesus when I am in heaven. I desire a ministry, and he promises I will serve him eternally. I desire a voice with which to praise him, and he promises I will sing before his throne. Most of all, I desire to see him, and he promises I will always behold his face. He will keep his promise to give me the desires of my heart. Is it true for him? Is it true for you? Absolutely. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. See, what happens when I find my delight in God is my desires change. I look around at the world around me, and what I desire is God to reign. And what I desire is for God to be glorified. So do not fret. Instead, delight yourself in the Lord. Don't get mad. Get glad. Not for no good reason, but because... What God said is true because he's, because he's on the throne, because wickedness does not last forever, because the meek inherit the earth, because when you delight yourself in the Lord, he gives the desires of your heart. Strength under control, I talked about a minute ago. I'll close with this illustration. It's actually an illustration um, 
Pastor Brian talks about, shared with me from when he was a teenager traveling through um, Colorado, and he was looking at the Colorado River. He said, Pastor Brian, when he was 15 or 16, his family was visiting Colorado, and the river was extremely high and causing great destruction as a result. The power generated by the rushing water washed out walkways and roadways. In addition, as we rode a train through the mountains, we came across two or three scenes where people who had attempted to raft the river were on banks awaiting medical attention. The power of the river is scary and potentially very dangerous. But then he says this, further downstream, however, this same energy runs through the Hoover Dam in Nevada. Rather than being destructive, this energy is quite constructive. As the water flows through the turbines in the dam, it creates enough energy to supply the needs of 1.3 million people in Nevada, Arizona, and California. The Colorado River creates a powerful force that can cause great destruction, but when the same force is channeled in the right way, it's a powerful force for good. Your fretting is a lot of energy. My fretting is a lot of energy but doesn't really accomplish anything. Makes us feel like we're doing something, but nothing changes. What David is saying is take that energy. Take that energy that you feel. Take that that emotion that you feel, and instead of fretting, trust in the Lord. Commit your ways to Him. Be still in His presence and delight yourself in Him and he will give you the desires of your heart. Jesus said the same thing many times, instructing us not to worry. If anyone had the right to be upset and irritated and angry about the evil in this world, it was Jesus. Not only as God was his world that he was created through him, according to John 1, not only was it a mess in many ways by the sin that people had brought in, but he had not contributed anything to the evil in this world. He was the only one that could say, not my fault, no fair, not my fault. And yet he didn't. He didn't. Instead, he faced unfair punishment of death, and it's because of his death and resurrection that we can be sure that those of us who follow God win in the end with him. And so we don't need to worry about what might be unfair in this world. Jesus could have said unfair more than anyone else and had a right to say it. And instead, he chose to willingly lay down his life. Because one day the wicked will be no more. And as Jesus said, the meek will inherit the earth Because what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? What does it profit if you were to have everything that you sometimes find yourself envious of but lost your soul? Instead, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Let's pray. Father, Lord, you know our world better than we know it. And you know the way that we respond many ways and the way that we are designed and the way that we often react to the world around us. You know the the irritation and the anger and the frustration that just sometimes rises up within us. You know the fretting that we 
are just tempted to give in to constantly. Not only that, Lord, you know better than us. Every hour, minute, and second that we have wasted fretting about the things that we almost always can do very little about to change. Almost always have almost nothing to do immediately with us, and yet we fret and worry about them, and we invest our time and energy there. Father, I pray that you would help us to take the words of this psalm, Lord, and apply them to our lives. Lord, this week when we are tempted to fret, would you help us to redirect that energy to delight in your presence, to trust in you, to commit our way to you, to be still before you. Father, I pray for every person in this room this morning that is overwhelmed at times by worry, anxiety and fear, fretting, irritation and frustration. God, I ask that this morning that your peace would reign in our lives. That as we leave this place today, we leave filled with hope. We leave knowing that this is your world, that you have not lost control of it in any way, that you are in full control. That the God who overcame death and the grave, the God who offers us salvation, the God who said the meek will inherit the earth is more than capable to handle the things that we fret about. And so I pray that we leave this room today with renewed trust and confidence in you. That we leave this room today in strength and in power, not because we've willed it to be so or we've willed ourselves to be happy in some way, but because we know that our faith and our joy and our delight is based on the rock of Jesus Christ and the Lord who is in control of all the world. So, Lord, may we leave this place with a renewed trust in you. Father, speak to us. Remind us even now of your great love and your great plan. Lord, we love you. Help us to delight in you as we leave today. In Christ's name, amen.